Our sermon is brought to you this morning by me. We face a national crisis of loneliness. Kurt Vonnegut participated in an all-member canvas of the Barnstable Massachusetts UU Church. So that gives him some UU credibility. He was a wise observer of US culture and one of my favorite writers. I've shared with you before Vonnegut's observation, and I know you were paying attention when I did this because Carol and Diane were taking notes. So you know about his belief that there is only one source for all the illness in America, and that is loneliness. He said this almost 40 years ago when the loneliness epidemic was just starting to infect our politics, our capitals, our gun sales, TV, our isolation, and the dis-ease and anger that we now confront all around us every day. And loneliness is not just a crisis in the US. England now has named a minister of loneliness to address the reality that one in every seven Brits is often beset with loneliness. And the related cost of loneliness threatened to bankrupt the national health system. A recent study showed the average American has only one friend, down from three in 1985. Another finding of the Pew study is that nearly three in every 10 Americans feel lonely all or most of the time. In the UK and elsewhere, the epidemic of loneliness is viewed as a health crisis. It's worse than smoking. It's associated with a greater risk of heart disease, dementia, depression, anxiety, but the effects likely go well beyond this serious and even deadly threat to our health. Sociologist Robert Putnam warned us years ago about the dangers of loneliness in his book, Bowling Alone. He showed hard evidence that states with high social capital and connection have less violent crime, greater health and more prosperity, and lower rates of tax evasion. People's disconnection makes them easy prey for those who seek to enlist them in anti-social actions. Their yearning to be accepted and be part of something, anything, makes them subject to easy extremist recruitment. The problem with loneliness is obvious. Now to our response to solve the entire problem. We can do this. As you use, we're not afraid of taking on big problems. A worldwide loneliness epidemic might take an extra meeting or two, maybe a task force, but we can handle that. What I'm afraid may happen, though, is that, as we so often do, we will try to address the large causes of, that contribute to loneliness and that we can't do anything about, thereby absolving us of the responsibility to deal with loneliness we find all around us. 
Finding something to blame loneliness on doesn't fix loneliness. Blaming Facebook, Twitter, the COVID, internet, the TV, Dr. Phil, all gives me more to be angry about, but I'm still lonely. And I'm kind of in the middle of something here. answers to my questions but I'm in the middle of doing a sermon and I might be using big words like existentialism and eschatology I can't be distracted I could hurt myself then the kids were wrong and you don't have time for my questions no as usual the children were right I was just thoughtlessly impatient what is your question well the children don't seem afraid of doing or saying the wrong things how can you control them if they don't fear the wrath of an angry God? How do they know how to face life? We seek to enrich our children's lives, not control them. Unitarian Universalists don't fear life. We affirm it. We encourage children to embrace life and not fearfully face it. Yeah, yeah. But what do you believe? Perhaps you may learn more about it in the sermon that I'd really like to finish. Well, nothing's on TV right now. I guess I have time to listen. Thank you so much. And now, where was I? Oh, yes. The solution. How can I, as a UU, fix such a big problem as an epidemic of loneliness? Here again, Vonnegut has something to say. He says, what should people do with their lives today? The most daring thing to do is to create stable communities in which the terrible disease of loneliness can be cured. But loneliness is such a big problem. A man watched a boy throwing starfish back into the sea. The man said, that won't really make a difference, you know. There are so many washed up on the beach, you can't save them all. And the boy tossed another back into the water and said, I made a difference to that one. Fish, ocean, and Kurt Wettigeth? I'm not hearing a lot about the beliefs. We believe in justice and compassion empowered by love. We believe in respect, many spiritual pathways. We encourage all sincerely held belief that seek a better world. Now that can't be right. My church tells me that there is only one proper belief, that there are many, many things people shouldn't believe, and those who believe differently will be sent to hell. Well, we find it pretty difficult to be selectively tolerant. Sort of destroys the whole concept of embracing people as they are. But still, what are all these beliefs? We embrace congregants who find meeting in Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, pagans, Wiccans, and those who enjoy daily assembling our belief as we go along. But what about the Ten Commandments? We affirm and promote principles that enrich our lives while we don't oppose any affirming ideas in the commandments. Well, if you violate those so-called principles, you go to hell, like in my church? 
Without the threat of hell, how do you know how to behave or what to believe? I really have to get back to my sermon. Perhaps we can talk later. Yeah, sure. When the hard questions come up, you go hide in your sermon. This you-you thing seems pretty permissive to me. You can follow different paths, and you don't have to worry about following the Ten Commandments or going to hell. And it's quite the opposite. The commandments are pretty specific and limiting in their scope. Don't kill people. Don't steal things. Don't lie. Whole lot of don't going on in the Ten Commandments. Our first principle affirming the worth and dignity of every person is more expansive. And nowhere in the commandments do the commandments address the vast web of all existence, as does our seventh principle. Our principles require a lot of thought and a lot of action. So, you're right and I'm wrong? No, hardly. Our second and third principles affirming acceptance, justice, equity, and compassion mean that I try to understand you rather than, uh, rather than correct you. So who does the correcting and the judging in this church? Don't you have elders and bishops to do that? Uh, no one's supposed to do the judging here. <laughs> Instead, we support each other as we search for truth and meaning. But the bishops, what do they do then? We have no bishops, no higher authority than the will of our congregation. Then who decides the sermon topics, the hymns that will be sung, and the Sunday school lessons to be taught? We don't call it Sunday school. We call it religious exploration and encourage our children to formulate their ideas with the help of our RE director. Those other decisions are considered by committees or by our music director, an accompanist, or interim minister. You have committees? Do we have committees? And who appoints the committees? They tend to grow organically as needed, attracting members to volunteer. Well, tell me about. I'm sorry, but I really need to get back to my sermon. All right, but I still have lots of questions. <clears throat> Groups are not lonely. Individuals are. So that's where my response must begin. We act as UU first responders by making one connection at a time. When I welcome and shepherd one lonely person into our community or connect with that lonely person in the larger society, I might be saving a life. There is a callous authoritarian approach to loneliness that you've heard. Stop being lonely. Just do what I do and you'll feel better right now. That's as unhelpful as cheer up. Or my favorite is, there's no reason for you to feel depressed. As if I needed to be argued into feeling better. Excuse me. I was thinking about that inherent worth and dignity of every person. Yes, but I really need to finish my sermon. Please, go on quickly. Well, at my apartment, this guy parks his big honking truck so close to my car that I have to climb over the passenger seat to get in. Yes. Those principles you talk about, would they try to promote the worth and dignity of that guy? Yes. Even that guy, who is obviously pretty worthless. 
developing the capacity to appreciate his worth and dignity as it is might allow you to change your relationship with him. And what about this search for truth and meaning? Seems like there would end up being lots of different truths in your church. Having everyone believe the same thing would be so much simpler. You use have never sought to simplify things. <laughs> in fact, the more complicated they become, the more interesting they seem to us. All of this is making my head hurt. I just need to sit and think about it for a while. Yes, what a good idea. <laughs> and now I can finally finish my sermon. Not all people are easy to befriend, but their dis-ease calls us to deliver our caring response. Now, engaging with lonely people is not always easy or rewarding. Their loneliness can make them seem troublesome or irritating. <laughs> but overcoming loneliness is the way to build a healthy community. It's the way to save lives. Now, all this is too vague. What, what specific things do I have to do in order truly to be welcoming to those seeking community and connection? Being deeply welcoming rather than just being tolerant. How can I respond to loneliness with deep connection? I propose radical welcoming. I, like many of you, I'm so content to be here sometimes, I just sit in a pew and choose to be alone with my peaceful thoughts. But I remember 20 years ago when I experienced radical welcoming here. Gary, Alan, and Duane welcomed me with enthusiasm and invited me to participate in ramp building. In fact, Duane was so welcoming he said, I'll be parked in your driveway at 7.30 to take you to work. <laughs> and he did that every day for two weeks because he was afraid I'd get tired and go home. I, was deep, I felt deeply welcomed and I felt like I had found another UU home. Along with radical welcoming, I hope to include radical listening. Radical listening demands I commit to do so much more than hearing, more than comprehending what I hear. I want to train myself to emotionally savor what I hear. When you're talking to me, you're offering something within you, your thoughts exposed. I can't squander that gift by thinking that my reply, what my reply should be. Radical listening demands that I hear from a depth beyond the sound of words, and that requires my concentration. We tend to converse in this culture at what I call the speed of sitcom, leaving no silence unfilled. We talk over each other, we don't listen because we're waiting to make the next sitcom statement. I was a consultant to a tribal council in Alaska and helping them come to a decide to a decision about something that they were going to do with tribe. And being a 
a, a highly skilled coordinator and facilitator of this kind of thing. I wrote the three questions that we were going to start out with for this first day. And I highlighted the first question and I explained the background of it and I kind of turned it into a softball question so that everybody in the council would be able to respond without any problem. And when I finished my softball, my softball presentation, I heard absolute silence. Not a sound. And it went on for such a long time that I thought I would have to say something because these people have gone into sleep or have gone into a petty mall seizure. Finally, one person spoke up, spoke so precisely and thoughtfully to the question that I had presented that I was blown away. And when that person finished speaking, there was silence. And no one said anything until another council member spoke up and made an absolutely appropriate and pointed statement that needed to be said. And after that, there was absolute silence. They gave each other pauses to reflect on what was said and an idea to internalize into their being before they started to speak. It was a wonderful experience. I thought it would take forever at the rate they were doing, but as a result, the meetings were faster than I had ever predicted because they didn't talk over each other, they didn't repeat each other, and they didn't blather about whatever it is that they had to come up with that they hadn't thought about. Now, as I practice radical listening, I hope to practice radical connection, a deeper engagement with the world and all I meet there. What effect will I have if I can change conditions with those I meet in passing, being the first responder mitigating potential loneliness? I hark back to my mother's wise words, what the world needs is a good listening to. Listening starts with asking the right questions. Don't ask, how are you? The answer is fine. What do you do? I stand up here and talk. Where are you from? I'm from lots of places. But instead, how is it with you? What thing today made you feel grateful? What makes your heart sing today? What, how is today an improvement over yesterday? How is this moment giving you meaning? What meaning do you find in this new now? Our society has prepared, prepared us to be superficial questioners, leading to yes, no, fine answers that are meaningless. As a UU responder, I need to ask deeper, open-ended questions to build meaningful connection. Now, when I ask a child what she wants to be when she grows up, I deny the vibrant presence of her existence today. 
and force her to suddenly live in an ambiguous future that I'm comfortable with that ignores who she is at that moment. And I miss knowing something of what's in her heart. I lose the chance to make a real connection, asking questions that may give rise to complicated answers brings me into deeper connection. Well, have you ever noticed that in Unitarian churches, all the clocks face the pulpit? <laughs> There's a reason for that. <clears throat> and I see that I run out of time. So sorry for all the interruptions today, but I couldn't control them. I truly believe that connection overcomes loneliness that overcoming loneliness is life-saving, that connection is what makes life rewarding. As you've seen this morning, connection is often hard to control, that loneliness can be challenging, but connection is more important than control in, the work, in our work as UU first responders, who free the mind, grow the spirit, and reach out to the world.